A few weeks ago, a comedian on Twitter wrote, No New Year's resolutions. It is the circumstances turn to improve. Which only seems fair after the past few years, or decades, or centuries. Also, New Year's resolutions almost never work, right? Every year we think, this is the year. But it never is. We forget how hard it is to change. And then we feel worse when it doesn't happen. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Wake up one day when we're 49 years old and quit our day job and become an artist in Paris without any training whatsoever? Well, maybe. Let's go back to 1908, November in Paris. Pablo Picasso is throwing a party with his friend Guillaume Apollinaire, a poet and critic and cool kid about town, both in their late 20s. Picasso still has his hair, he has his swagger, and he has a studio apartment in a rundown green building with no heat and a single shared cold water faucet. A building called the Bateau Lava, the laundry boat, because it creaks and leaks and just walking around can make you seasick. Picasso's mistress makes a kind of paella, and Gertrude Stein scrapes up some cheeses and sardines. And everyone who's anyone in their little avant-garde circle crams into this dinner party. The painters Georges Braque and Juan Gris, and the poet Max Jacob and the Steins, and so on. And then the guest of honor shows up. 64 years old, white hair, droopy mustache, a violin in one hand and a cane in the other. Apollinaire raises a toast. These wines that in your honor Picasso pours, let's drink them then, since it's the hour for drinking. Crying in unison, long live, long live Rousseau. Henri Rousseau had in fact left his day job at 49 to become an artist in Paris with no formal training whatsoever. And now, here he is, sitting atop a makeshift throne in Picasso's studio, King of the Bohemians. As Rousseau tells Picasso at some point during the night, you and I are the two most important artists of the age. Well, maybe that's going a little far. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. A bonus episode as we turn the calendar to 2022. About taking that leap of faith, even when no one else thinks you should. Happy New Year. I'm Tim Geary. Let's start at the beginning, shall we?
like all good fairy tales. Once upon a time in western France, in the town of Laval, with its castle and village walls and a river running through it, where Henri Rousseau is born into the family of a tinsmith, or a plumber, or both. It's a hard-knock life, being a tinsmith or a plumber, in a small town in France in 1844. Worse if you can't hang on to what little money you have. And Rousseau's father hangs on to almost none of it. He drags the family from one town to another to avoid his debts. Rousseau goes to boarding school, so at least he can stop moving around. And then, at 19, he's arrested for some petty thefts in the office of an attorney where he's studying to become a lawyer. And so, he too skips town, joins the army. Just as the French Empire has decided to invade Mexico, Remember Guillaume Apollinaire, the cool kid at Picasso's party? He used to tell this story about Rousseau in Mexico, fighting his way through the jungles to Mexico City. Jungles full of jaguars and snakes. It's true that French soldiers landed Veracruz, along with the Spanish and the British, to persuade Mexico to resume paying interest on its debts. And while the Spanish and British are soon like, Okay, job over. Time to go home. The French are like, Yeah, bye. See you back there. And go on to conquer the entire country. They install this Austrian aristocrat, Maximilian, right, as the first emperor of Mexico. Yeah, that doesn't go well. But Rousseau wasn't there for any of it. He never goes to Mexico. He never leaves France. After four years in the army, he moves to Paris, marries the 15-year-old daughter of his landlord, and goes to work as a toll collector for the next 26 years. Rousseau doesn't start painting until he's about 40. And when he quits his day job at 49, he actually retires, even though he has no savings to speak of. He's been showing his art at the Independent Salon, which anyone can get in. And when he sells, it's not for very much. So he's playing his violin in the street to make ends meet. In some months, they're hardly meeting. But a man can dream. Along with some portraits and Paris landscapes, he's painting these evocative, mysterious scenes of lions and tigers romping in the jungle, which seem to come out of nowhere. Because he hasn't been anywhere, right? Except to the zoo and the botanical garden. Quote, when I go into the glass houses, he says, and I see the strange plants of exotic lands, it seems to me that I enter into a dream. 
Do you remember the Seinfeld episodes where Kramer keeps showing up to work at some place that never actually hired him? Rousseau is a little like that. He paints these fantastical scenes like something out of a child's storybook and then displays them in the fine art capital of the world. Like, what? Is there a problem here? He doesn't seem to care that no one knows what he's doing here in the art world. Even when the gatekeepers try to push him out. The salon organizers hang his work in the shadowy corners, far from the spotlight. The critics embarrass him. If you want a good laugh, one critic writes, go see the paintings by Henri Rousseau. But Henri, fake it till you make it, Rousseau keeps showing up anyway. Now, let's check in on Picasso. Picasso starts learning the rules of art practically from birth, right? His father is a professor of art back in Spain. And Picasso starts taking classes from his father at age seven. At 14, he's exhibiting and selling his paintings. And so, by the time he gets to Paris in 1900, He's already trying to forget everything he's learned about art. So he can do something totally original, whatever that is. As he later puts it, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. And then, one day, he sees the work of Rousseau, who has always painted like a child who has nothing to unlearn about art because he's never learned anything. It's easy to break the rules when you don't know what they are. Picasso buys a big painting by Rousseau that he finds in a Paris secondhand shop. A portrait of a woman, inexplicably holding a tree branch while an impossibly high waterfall tumbles in the background. Picasso assumes he must be the first person to discover this guy. Why else would this genius be in the junk shop? But he's not the first to notice. Artists, especially the young ones, have been noticing for some time. When Rousseau showed his first tiger scene in 1891, one artist called it the Alpha and Omega of painting. And a few years later, in 1894, at the Independent Salon, Rousseau entered a painting simply called War, or La Guerre. A scene of a woman with a sword and a burning torch riding through a battlefield on a black horse. The ground is covered with a pile of bodies, crows picking at their flesh. There's a print of it on orange paper in the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. 
The original is in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. It's a strange-looking picture. Horses don't run like that. You don't ride horses like that. People don't die like that. It's completely unreal and over the top. And again, young artists, looking for the next new thing, are entranced. Rousseau, one of them wrote after seeing it, has the rare merit of having a style that is completely his own. He is moving towards a new art. And now, as a new century begins, and a new kind of art is taking shape, Rousseau is right in the mix. In 1905, his painting called The Hungry Lion Throws Itself on the Antelope is shown along with works by the avant-garde, like Henri Matisse. One critic calls their display a cage of faves, a cage of wild beasts. And soon this fauvism, with its wild colors and improbable scenes, is the vanguard of modern art. And maybe this is the best that most of us can hope for. Live long enough, and the circumstances will change. When Rousseau shows up to Picasso's party for him in 1908, it's not exactly clear if these young intellectuals are really celebrating him, patronizing him. Is he a peer or kind of mascot, a class pet? Rousseau doesn't seem to care, really. His belief in himself has gotten him this far, and he's not about to stop believing now. At some point, he tells Guillaume Apollinaire, who wants to write about him, Oh, great. Now you can avenge all the nasty things people have said about me. But Rousseau's luck is about to run out. The year before, he got called up in an embezzlement scheme, unwittingly. And the stench of impropriety never quite leaves him. Then, in 1910, he accidentally cuts himself on the leg and gets severe blood poisoning, kind of gangrene. And soon... Less than two years after Picasso's party, Rousseau is dead, buried in a pauper's grave. It's possible, of course, that not even Picasso and his friends knew how they felt about Rousseau or what he meant to them. He was the Alpha and Omega, after all the beginning and the end of his kind. It's not long after he's gone, though, that people seem to realize what was lost, how rare it is to see things without a filter, not knowing what you don't know. And as the world stumbles toward a new century of war, there is a sense of innocence lost. Rousseau's body is brought up and placed in a proper tomb. The sculptor Brancusi, 
creates a headstone. And Apollinaire writes an epitaph. We salute you, he writes. Let our baggage through free, and we shall bring you brushes, paints, and canvas. About 30 years later, Picasso is in his studio, wrestling with a painting for the Spanish government, something for the Spanish pavilion at the International Exhibition of 1937 in Paris. Then the Nazis bomb the Spanish town of Guernica, and 4,000 people die, and Picasso decides to make a statement. His immense canvas, simply called Guernica, right? And it seems, in some ways, to come out of nowhere. Moral outrage from an amoral art movement. But there is a precedent, of course. In Picasso's old friend, Rousseau. The patron saint of coming out of nowhere. Picasso had held on to the Rousseau portrait he found in the Paris junk shop, kept it in his studio for decades, and he collected many more. Even into the 1960s, you would see Picasso in a studio, and there were Rousseau paintings hanging around. Here in his Guernica painting, he seems to be channeling Rousseau's image of war, with its crumpled bodies and apocalyptic horse rider. War is hell. Rousseau saw no reason to pretend otherwise. This is perhaps the highest calling of innocence, to show us what we don't want to see. And Rousseau, of course, never cared what we wanted to see. In his last painting, Made the Year He Died, Rousseau shows a woman naked on a couch in the jungle. It's called The Dream, and no one seems to understand why he put a couch in the jungle. I am writing in response to your friendly letter to explain to you the reason the couch in question is where it is, Rousseau says to one critic. The woman is dreaming, he says, traveling in her mind to the forest. To another critic, he says simply, because one has a right to paint one's dreams. As if he were explaining why he did all this in the first place. Quitting one life and starting another. As if it were still the most revolutionary thing in the world to simply be yourself. This has been a bonus episode of The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. The next season will start soon. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be the first to hear it. Stay safe, be well, and thanks very much for listening.